0: Hello, and welcome to this podcast from the Oxford Institute for Energy Studies. Hello, and welcome to this latest OIS podcast. My name is James Henderson. I'm a Distinguished Research Fellow at the Institute. And with me today, I have Rahman Al-Suleyman, who is an OIS Aramco Fellow at the Institute and has written a fascinating piece of research on the use of hydrogen in aviation. That has been published on the OIS website and which we're going to talk about today. Abdirahman, welcome to the OIS podcast series. Thank you, James. Okay, well look, let's get into this because it is a fascinating topic and one that's critical for the energy transition. First of all, why do you think that the you know looking at the aviation industry is so important and why in the context of hydrogen?
1: Well, firstly, I've been working, you know, in uh, aviation research previously, and also in the broader context, you know, there is this urgency to to decarbonize aviation, and it's been increasingly pronounced, especially in the last five years, which is perhaps mirroring other sectors or other momentums across industries. But in the case of aviation, the segment is not built for almost a hasty decarbonization, and the solutions to decarbonize are not as simple as, you know, for example, replacing an internal combustion engine with a battery pack and a bunch of motors. So it's a bit more uh, nuanced in terms of the possible solutions. And that's why
0: it's so interesting. I mean, as we look at your paper, I think it's interesting in the introductory parts of your paper, you kind of talk about how the aviation industry has developed and, and particularly around emissions and efficiency. And there's one clear dichotomy that you point out, which is that the aviation industry has been getting much, much more efficient. There's a very stark graph from the 1950s to to today, and you can see how much more efficient the industry's got, and yet overall carbon emissions continue to rise. So can you just shed a bit of light on that dynamic and how it's kind of playing a pivotal role in the aviation industry's sustainability efforts? Efficiency
1: is is a good metric uh, because it has, you know, the CO2 emitted revenue passenger kilometer, or RPK for short. This measures basically the CO2 per RPK, and it's great when you want to compare different, you know... uh, Planes that are flying, for example, from Dubai to London or from Riyadh to Dubai. It's a a great uh, comparison metric, basically. It also is a great comparison metric if you want to see how an airline has improved its CO2 or its RPK over time. Uh, So it's great in that sense, but it's a bit, again, it's a a, a ratio. So it can be misleading uh, if the industry as a whole has been growing in terms of uh, CO2 emissions, uh, which has been the case in the last few years. So it, it's not as uh, clear. So when we look at emissions, the, as an example, from the 1980s to the year 2000, so in the 20 years, it grew from around 400 megatons of CO2 to 600 megatons. But in the last 20 years, and this is pre-COVID levels, it grew from 600 to 400 megatons. So that's quite a stark difference that's perhaps not seen in the efficiency metric.
0: What we're saying basically is that the growth of the industry has been so rapid that it's basically overwhelmed the efficiency gains, and so overall emissions have been rising as a result. Would that be a sort of fair summary?
1: Exactly. So yes, in terms of efficiency, it is again it's a, it's a ratio. So if you're in improving your RPK more than perhaps you know the, the emissions that are being emitted, you could have this you know this positive uh, outlook or positive output, but Still, this doesn't show us, you know, the, the total growth in emissions. And that's 2% of global energy-related emissions come from aviation. And if you use an efficiency metric, this doesn't show that.
0: Repeat again for us, what what is the, what are the total emissions from aviation in megatons or gigatons?
1: So in terms of emissions, around 1,000 megatons pre-COVID levels, the latest estimates from the International Civil Aviation Organization and the International Air Transport Association show that we have probably recovered in terms of emissions in the year 2023 or perhaps the start of 2024. So we, we've already reached that level and we'll go beyond.
0: We're back to pre-COVID levels in terms of emissions, obviously not great. So in terms of the way forward, why do we not focus more on efficiency? I mean, how much more is there to, to gain in efficiency and uh, you know, optimizing flight schedules What are the limitations of that approach, which mean that we kind of have to look at alternatives?
1: So when we talk about efficiency, there are two, of course, there is the the efficiency in terms of improving the the aircraft's performance, so reducing the CO2 emitted, or, you know, improving RPK. Both cases don't solve the main issue, which is, you know, this, this big growth in emissions. So if the industry wants to grow, And there are, you know, there are no calls currently, you know, by the major producers, major users to reduce, you know, the growth of the industry. The only path is to find a solution to the carbon that's being emitted. You can't, you know, stop emissions by improving and improving your efficiency. It's just you're reducing the the growth level. That's it.
0: Okay. And one final sort of introductory point is that you make the point in your paper that this is really very much about passenger aviation rather than freight. Can you just explain a little bit of the rationale behind that?
1: Of course. So more than 80% of emissions are being emitted through passenger operations. Of course, airlines diversify through, you know, moving passengers, but also cargo. But that the main objective is passenger transport. So that's why uh, the main rationale. And also here we exclude military operations, but that that is also, you know, not as big as uh, the, the biggest contributor to emissions in the segment, which
0: is passenger operations. And kind of what percentage of of emissions from aviation come from passenger operations versus everything else? Around 80%. So here we are. Efficiency gains are, are sort of, we're reaching a limit, if you like, in what we're going to achieve in efficiency gains. We need to decarbonise, we need to reduce those emissions. So what are those solutions then for, for transitioning? What are the potential pathways for aviation to achieve decarbonization? Are there some particularly notable strategies or technologies that stand out?
1: Before, perhaps just before I address this point, I'd just like to address the point on, you know, the aspect of improving the efficiency of the aircraft turbofan engines themselves. We have still not reached, you know, again, the maximum efficiency we can get. But even if we do, from an engineering perspective, quite good if you improve your, you know, the amount of energy you produce per kilogram of fuel you use. The issue is you still use fuel. And that in itself, in a growing industry, will not change, you know, by a major margin, the amount of emissions that you emit. An alternative is possibly uh, two solutions. One is finding new propulsion technologies. And the second is addressing the fuel aspect itself. So how can we make the fuel the same fuel or similar fuel with different feedstocks.
0: Okay, so let's take the propulsion technology first then and then come to the fuel later. In your paper, you explore hydrogen and electrification propulsion technologies. So let's talk about both by all means. Is there is there a winner between the two or do we need both? Can you describe a little bit how they operate?
1: In terms of a, of a clear winner, we, we can't predict absolutely the future, but we can learn from you know the technical capacity or the technical limits of the possible options. So you have the hydrogen option and you have the battery option. When you look at you know the technical aspect, which is you know for example the fuel volumetric energy density and the fuel mass energy density, hydrogen is a better solution. But by you know by, by fact, it has much higher fuel energy mass density compared to better technologies, for example, lithium ion or zinc air batteries. And it has also a better performance if it is in a liquefied state in the fuel vol- volumetric energy density. So that is uh, you know, a clear aspect between the two.
0: And are there any problems with hydrogen? I mean, that, there, are those, there are some advantages. What's the problems?
1: There are plenty of, uh, of challenges for both technologies. So when you talk about hydrogen, there are two Ways you can use hydrogen to create to in in future propulsion. For example, you could use it in a system which is similar to how aircrafts fly and operate today. So you have uh, an aero a turbofan engine that uses uh, liquefied or gas hydrogen and that is ignited, which generates propulsion. Another way is you have a fuel cell operated system, which creates electricity and that drives you know uh, electric powered uh, propulsion. That is, you know, an aspect, and also, you know, similarly, you could have electric powered aspect with uh, batteries technologies. The issue is, you have to change how aircrafts look and are, you know, how they are constructed. Basically, with hydrogen, the main challenge is you have to reimagine or reinvent how fuel is distributed and stored within the aircraft, and also the amount of pressure that you'll have to, you know, pressure systems that you'll have to maintain throughout the flight battery systems it's also you know an issue of how much mass you're going to transport or how much additional mass you'll have to put in an aircraft and accommodate to fly you know from point
0: a to point b and so are there any examples yet from prototypes of the either of the hydrogen type either the direct burning of hydrogen or the fuel cells who's doing what
1: so in terms of demonstrations, there is only one demonstration that actually flew to the air and that used uh, hydrogen fuel cells in the last uh, three years. But in terms of the possible, you know, in terms of experimentation, there has been, you know, demonstrations, uh, but not, not, fly, not, not, not going to, to the air. Ryanair, in collaboration with uh, Rolls-Royce in 2022, in the end of 2022, Made a demonstration of hydrogen ignition in a retrofitted aircraft uh, turbofan engine. While you know there are there is this development by the major engine manufacturers such as GE to use hydrogen uh, demonstrators and also to produce uh, you know valuable uh, aspects from that. For batteries, there has been small uh, demonstrators, but in terms of development from the major producers. It's quite still, it's quite uh,
0: new and there are no major announcements. I mean, the sense one has from reading the press, at least, is that the, there is an anticipation that both battery technology and hydrogen technology to date is going to be used for short haul flights rather than long distance. But do you think ultimately either technology can have a, a chance of working you know, transatlantic and intercontinental?
1: So I'll take the example of Airbus in their hydrogen program. They are still to release, uh, you know, or to showcase the, the solution they have uh, in terms of an aircraft uh, that is running on hydrogen. And this will probably be as they planned in 2035, still to be seen. But the the, the space is still open. Of course, you know, there are uh, expectations and anticipation that, you know, hydrogen plus batteries will run uh, short haulage or, you know, medium haul flights, but that is just dependent on how much hydrogen and how much energy you want to store in the aircraft. And what that means in 2050, perhaps, a few demonstrators, a few short haul flights, but beyond that, it's just, you know, how you construct the aircraft and what the, the, the industry itself is happy with.
0: And you also talk in your paper about the amounts of hydrogen that would be needed. Um, I think you mentioned a figure of 100 million tonnes, which is as much hydrogen as it's consumed in the world at the moment. So which raises the question of of infrastructure, both the supply of the fuel, but also the infrastructure needed to refill airplanes at the very least and move the hydrogen around. Presumably, these are big challenges as well that that any, any kind of use of hydrogen in aviation would face.
1: Of course, it is a challenge because it has a lot. It creates a lot of demand that doesn't exist. A lot, you know, a lot of stress on a supply chain that perhaps is not even ready yet. But for us to fully decarbonize, it will take time. And if we use, you know, these next generation aircraft, again, they are not coming out in the next few years. So there is still this, this time scope for developing this hydrogen value chain. But on the positive aspect this creates you know the demand that the suppliers of hydrogen are waiting for and the and the stakeholders in the industry are waiting for to invest so if the aviation segment you know puts its step in and says we want hydrogen we need hydrogen then the supply chain will follow and it's much easier
0: than you know an aspect of we don't have hydrogen demand we don't have supply demand okay so just to kind of round up this this segment before we move on would it be fair to say that the technologies for both hydrogen and battery-powered flight are still under development? Or do you think we're almost there now with the technology? It's, it's more a case of making them commercial.
1: There is a huge difference between demonstrator and actual uh, commercial uh, flight-ready uh, aircraft. Nevertheless, I, I am uh, from just you know, speaking, uh, in- interviewing stakeholders in the industry and also you know, from the literature available, I am positive that, you know, in by 2030s, we'll, uh, we'll see some commercial light, uh, specifically, you know, when we look at hydrogen. How that hydrogen propulsion is going to happen, is it going to be electrified or is it going to be hydrogen ignition, is a big question. But, you know, I'm positive that we'll see a lot of development in the coming few years.
0: Okay, so in light of those challenges then, and, and you know, the time it's going to take, then we should talk about the kind of current fuel system, if you like, and talk about some of the regulations around Corsair, and perhaps you could talk us through what Corsair is and how it's, it's establishing regulations and talk about low carbon aviation fuels and and uh, sustainable aviation fuels. So firstly, can you just talk us uh, to us a little bit about the rules that have been set up by Corsair and, and, and how they operate?
1: Corsair is this major significant international major initiative directed at mitigating carbon emissions in the aviation sector. It basically contributes to you know, putting and setting you know, the, this and addressing the global environmental goals. It doesn't only mandate emission monitoring and reporting, but also establish you know, frameworks for reducing the carbon footprint of the sector through direct utilization of SAF, uh, sustainable aviation fuels, and lower carbon aviation fuels, or you know, credit systems reduction.
0: Okay, so let's get into a few definitions then. What are low-carbon aviation fuels? Can you just tell us what they are first?
1: Lower-carbon aviation fuels are this uh, fossil-based aviation fuel that adheres to the CORSIA sustainability criteria. Basically, the, the simple explanation is it is exactly the same aviation fuel that we use today, but with efficiency improvements or reduction in the emissions in the supply chain, specifically in the upstream supply. So trying as much as possible to reduce it. The, the number here that I'm, I'm, I'm mentioning is, for example, reducing from 89 grams per uh, CO2 megajoule to around 80 grams CO2
0: per megajoule. About a 10% reduction. Exactly. Okay, so basically, LCAF, low-carbonation infant fuels, exactly the same fuel, but just with a value chain that's been, hopefully, optimized for carbon emissions. So then what's a sustainable aviation fuel?
1: So a sustainable aviation fuel is a fuel that is made to, to be compatible with the engines that we, are, we use today, the turbofan engines that we use today for aviation in planes, but with a different feedstock. So we don't use a fossil feedstock, but we use a different feedstock. Today also, this is governed by limits to how much you know of this fuel you can mix with existing fuels, and this is just due to limitations with old aircraft uh, turbofan engines. But in the future, you know, the, the newer planes, there has been demonstrations. There has been the, the, these, these technology advance, advancements in turbofan engines that we can use 100% as safe. So sustainable aviation fuels is the same as
0: the fuel that we use today, but from a different feedstock. Let me just then ask, come back to the hydrogen question. Does hydrogen only have a role in sustainable aviation fuels or does it have a role in low carbon aviation fuels as well? Let's start with low carbon. Is there any role for hydrogen there?
1: Of course. So hydrogen can play a role in both for example today we use a lot of hydrogen in refining fuels uh, in crude oil specifically and perhaps if we use green hydrogen or a renewable sort of hydrogen then this directly reduces you know the emission intensity so it has a role to play there and also for a sustainable aviation fuel as i mentioned in the paper there are multiple pathways to produce sustainable aviation fuel and hydrogen almost always plays a role in refining and giving, uh, basically making the fuel itself.
0: Can you give us a couple of examples of how sustainable aviation fuels are produced and how they kind of fit into the into the larger picture of, of aviation sustainability?
1: Of course. So in terms of making SAF, you have, I'll, I'll bring the example of two pathways. So you can, uh, this is called a synthetic sustainable aviation fuel. And this is, you know, the one that will have the most usage of hydrogen, which is basically using renewable power. You know, if you have renewable power, you put it through an electrolyzer, you make hydrogen. And through that hydrogen, you make syngas, basically. And from the syngas, uh, you have uh, different processes to synthesize that uh, syngas into the wanted or chemical form of the fuel. Another way is, for example, making hydroprocessed esters and fatty acids. So you can have this algae cooking oil, uh, plant oils, that you put through chemical processes to create lipids, and to create lipids you need uh, hydrogen in the process. Perhaps it is uh, within the process that you have the hydrogen itself, you know, embodied in the chemical or the feedstock itself. But then you also need external hydrogen to enrich the process and create this this heffa fuel, as it's called, and then which is refined to
0: sustainably. So you mentioned a number of kind of blends in your paper between sustainable aviation fuel and kind of normal aviation fuel. And you talked earlier about how we're moving towards sort of bigger percentages. Where are we overall now and where do you expect us to be by 2030? Are we, are we moving towards a world where sustainable aviation fuel just takes over entirely or is, are we always going to be blending with, with existing fuels?
1: Well, the blending question will be less of a question or less of an important aspect as we move forward. As today, you know, many of uh, turbofan engines that we use in aircraft are have been demonstrated to be able to have a hundred percent blend of SAF. So, in the future, it will be less of an important aspect blending wise. In terms of actually having it as as a as a as a major component in the future fuel system of by 2050 that's still you know it is it is a target so the international civil aviation organization and iata put a major aspect of decarbonization by you know this 2050 2060 window due to the use of sustainable aviation fuels so the, the big organizations in the segment say Yes, we see a huge role for SAF to play in
0: decarbonisation of aviation. And just as we come to the end, I want to talk to you about one other emission, if I may. I mean, we talked a lot about here about reducing CO2 emissions, but in your paper, you mentioned NOx as well. And you sort of highlight the fact that NOx emissions have actually increased. Do some of the solutions we've talked about here also reduce NOx emissions or do any of them cause a bigger problem? NOx is not a direct
1: emission with any of the possible, you know, uh, specifically in, in future propulsion technologies. So it is not a direct uh, emission in, in the processes. However, when you use hydrogen ignition, when you have this chemical ignition of hydrogen, it is extremely high temperature. When you have atmospheric air, which runs through the, the, the inlet of the turbofan engine, you create NOx just simply uh, because of the high temperature of the ignition. And this is a major issue. However, it is being looked at by industry and there are possible uh, solutions to this issue. It may come at a cost of reducing total efficiency of the propulsion configuration, but it is perhaps not as huge of an issue in terms of total emissions. Today, we emit many different gases, so a reduction in the total emissions of total gases and then addressing the NOx issue will be a
0: simplified one compared to the situation we have. Okay, and then sort of final question then. I mean, we've talked about various solutions, various sort of engine technologies and fuel inputs. How confident are you that the combination of these will allow the aviation industry to get to net zero by 2050? Do you think that's an achievable target? Or is there, is there still so far to go that we can't really hope for net zero by 2050?
1: As I mentioned in the, in the start, you know, the window is tightening for uh,
0: net zero for the aviation
1: sector. And it has to, you know, make it sacked up. Perhaps by 2050, we won't see a huge jump in new propulsion technologies. We might have a few demonstrators. We might have a few uh, flight-ready commercial uh, solutions. In terms of net zero through carbon credits and implementation of sustainable aviation fuel quotas and also uh, consumption, that's. Is possible, and that is currently being done. We have, for example, in the last five years, in terms of historical contracted SAF amounts, we have seen the, this growth. And I am positive that you know by the twenty fifties we can, if correct policies and also investment happens, it is possible to have you know major reduction replacing fuel sources.
0: Okay. Well, look, Abdurrahman, thank you very much indeed for your comments today and for your paper, which, as I mentioned earlier, is on the OIS website. It's a fascinating read. There's lots of detail in there. So I thoroughly encourage our listeners to go and download that for free off our website. But with that, thank you again, Abdurrahman. Thank you to all our listeners for tuning in. There'll be another OIS podcast next week. So look out for that. But in the meantime, take care of yourselves and goodbye. Thank you for listening to this podcast from the oxford institute for energy studies you can find other podcasts as well as our written research on our website at www.oxfordenergy.org if you would like more details about our energy transition gas oil electricity or china research programs then please contact us at information at oxfordenergy.org.